Hello, and welcome to Fraud Eat Strategy, an FTI consulting podcast series in which we explore the myriad ways that fraud, corruption, and misconduct can derail strategy and cause havoc. I'm Scott Moritz, a Senior Managing Director in FTI's Risk and Investigations Practice, where I assist clients and their outside counsel in managing their response to event-driven, white-collar crime, misconduct, and bribery incidents. This is another special edition of the podcast series in which we periodically examine a major case. In this episode, we're going to discuss Lava Jato, or Operation Car Wash, which is the largest and most complex corruption investigation in the history of Brazil, which has to date spread to 11 countries, mostly in Latin America. When the Organization of Economic Cooperation and Development, the OECD, published the Farm Bribery Report in 2014, which was an examination of corruption enforcement across the world, Brazil was then credited with zero corruption prosecutions. Since then, there have been multiple major prosecution of Petrobras, Braskem, Electrobras, Keppel Offshore, SBM Offshore, Embraer, Panalpina, Orthofix, and hundreds of individual defendants. Lava Jato is so named because its initial focus was money laundering and agents known as Doleros, who are black market money dealers, used small businesses such as car washes to launder the proceeds of crime. The investigation quickly revealed that the Doleros were working on behalf of an executive at Brazilian state-owned company Petrobras, Paulo Roberto Costa, who was the director of refining and supply. Costa's involvement with Deleros enabled investigators to uncover a complex web of corruption in which several Petrobras directors would overpay on high-value contracts with various companies for construction, drilling, refineries, and oil exploration. The recipients of the overpayments agreed that in exchange for a guarantee of profitable contracts with Petrobras, they would kick back between 1% and 5% of every deal into slush funds. These slush funds were then used by the Petrobras directors to pay millions of dollars to the politicians who had appointed them and the political parties with which those politicians were affiliated. The objective of all of this activity was to fund election campaigns, enabling those same corrupt politicians to maintain their lucrative hold on political office and the power that came along with it. So while politicians were the primary beneficiaries of the bribe payments funded by the overpayment scheme, everyone involved benefited from the receipt of illicit cash, luxury cars, Rolexes, fine art, and other expensive gifts purchased with money stolen from the Brazilian people. If the corruption was limited to just the gigantic state-owned oil company, Petrobras, it would have been a huge scandal, but its reach had many tentacles. It has spawned multiple major corruption investigations and prosecutions, toppled several successive presidents of Brazil, and led to corruption prosecution throughout Latin America. The statistics are staggering. More than $2 billion siphoned off of Petrobras and bribes and secret payments for contract work, $3.3 billion paid in bribes by the construction firm Odebrecht, 16 companies implicated, 50 congressmen accused, four former presidents disgraced. While corruption is far from having been eradicated in Brazil and the other countries touched by Lava Jato, the awareness of corruption and the intolerance for it has been burning brightly across Latin America ever since. It has arguably changed the business landscape there forever. So joining me today to discuss the long-term impact of Lava Jato are two experts on corruption investigations in Latin America, Cleary Gottlieb partner, Jonathan John Kalodner, and FTI Managing Director, Chris Sa. 
John is a partner in Cleary Gottlieb's white collar crime and government investigations practice. His practice focuses on white collar criminal enforcement and regulatory matters, as well as complex commercial litigation. He represents clients in investigations involving a range of misconduct, including foreign corruption, fraud, insider trading, money laundering, and antitrust offenses. He also advises companies on cybersecurity and data privacy issues and counsels clients on best practices for anti-corruption and cyber-related compliance programs. Before joining Cleary, John was a prosecutor with the U.S. Attorney's Office in the Southern District of New York from 2000 to 2012, where he served in numerous leadership positions and oversaw some of the highest profile investigations and prosecutions in the country. He served as acting chief of the criminal division from October 2011 through January 2012. And in that role, he supervised the office's more than 160 prosecutors in various matters, including securities fraud, public corruption, cybercrime, terrorism, and violent crimes. Chris DeSaw is a managing director at FTI Consulting, and he focuses on risk and investigations in Latin America, with his primary focus being Brazil. He's fluent in Portuguese and has lived, studied, and worked in Brazil for over 20 years. He's worked on dozens of corruption and fraud investigations involving Brazilian companies, many of which relate to the Lava Jato scandal. More recently, he has also worked on numerous high-profile disputes and arbitrations associated with Lava Jato. His expertise includes investigative fact-finding, forensic accounting, privileged consulting, expert witness services, and a wide range of risk management matters in Brazil. So welcome, John and Chris, and, and thanks for joining me today. Thanks, Scott. Nice to be here. Hey, Chris. Thanks, Scott and John. Always a pleasure to see you. So Lava Jato triggered corruption investigations in 11 countries, and it extended from oil and gas, chemicals, construction, development banking, and the meatpacking industries, among others. Many of the customary compliance program elements that used to be unfamiliar in the Brazilian and other Latin American business communities have begun to represent the norm. In addition, corruption investigations have continued, and what used to be the public sort of grudging acceptance of the inevitability of corruption in Brazil is no longer considered acceptable. And yet, not all countries have the legal infrastructure and political will to continue to pursue corruption cases. What does the future hold for corruption enforcement across Latin America, both in terms of where we should expect to see aggressive multi-country enforcement and where we should expect to see business as usual? Thanks, Scott. Maybe I can take the first crack at that one. It's an interesting question. I think you certainly have seen over the last couple of years a slowing down of enforcement efforts in the region. And I think there are reasons to be pessimistic about the future of large-scale enforcement activities, and but there are also reasons to be optimistic. And maybe just starting with the bad news first, the pessimistic reasons. Right now, with the Lava Jato task force that's been dissolved, you know, the Bolsonaro administration, and if you do a survey across the region, it's really not clear right now what countries are going to lead the way in those kinds of big multi-jurisdictional enforcement efforts besides the United States. And you know, particularly the kind of thing that came out of Lava Jato. Now, there have been high profile cases, certainly over the last few years. I mean, just looking at uh, outside of Brazil and Argentina, the notebooks case, the Cuadernos cases, and in Mexico as well. But those really haven't led to the kind of sustained anti-corruption effort, I think, that we saw in Brazil, and certainly nothing on the scale of Lava Jato. 
And then I think on top of that, you have the pandemic, which has really caused a humanitarian disaster across the region and political unrest and really have, I think, further hampered anti-corruption efforts in the region. You've still on top of that, uh, and sort of an effort to undermine uh, institutions. And we've seen that in Brazil and, and elsewhere as well. And I think that also will hamper anti-corruption efforts. But there are, I think, also reasons to be optimistic. And you know, one of the big ones is that the Department of Justice continues to be very active. And I think the Department of Justice had a big part to play in Lava Jato and driving some of those cases as well. We do see agencies and investigative authorities active across the region and Brazil. You know, those institutions like the MPF or the CGU, and we'll talk about some of these later, but they all continue to do their work, even if the Lava Jato task force has been dissolved. There are also new laws, which I think make it easier for institutions to prosecute these cases in Brazil and Argentina and Mexico and elsewhere. In addition, companies are also taking these issues very seriously. There is an increased focus on compliance programs, conducting internal investigations. There are reasons for companies to do this, of course, being good corporate citizens, but also because of the real benefits that companies get from identifying wrongdoing early, being in a position to self-report to the authorities. The Department of Justice's corporate enforcement policy really places a premium on having that kind of information and having a compliance program that can identify that kind of conduct. And that hopefully will limit problematic conduct. And to the extent misconduct happens, it'll be identified and reported to the authorities earlier on and can lead to these kinds of bigger investigations. So just to jump in, I wholeheartedly agree with John that particularly currently, I think we're facing an interesting scenario from an anti-corruption enforcement standpoint in Latin America. And obviously the region is uneven and as a Latin Americanist, but first as a Brazilianist, I'm loath to throw all countries into the same bucket because as we all know here, Argentina's experience is very different than Brazil's experience, very different than Peru. I mean, both from a historical path dependency standpoint, their cultures, their business, you know, they're dramatically different. That being said, I do think there are broad trends and I think Brazil is emblematic of really three phases, if we think about Lava Jato. I think it's fair to say when Lava Jato first hit, there was just this wave of optimism across the region as to, okay, finally, the region is going to do something about corruption and the hegemonic power in some ways in the region, Brazil, especially in South America, leading on those efforts. And so, you know, as John points out, the Minister Bubuku, the CGU, the TCU, you had a lot of factors that came together in a kind of virtuous cycle. And for people like me, it's kind of unsurprising that we moved into a second phase, which is what I'll call the empire strikes back and or the reversion to the mean in Latin America. And that's not surprising. And I think there's a theme here, which is, look, Anti-corruption efforts are really important. Anti-corruption laws are important. Enforcement is critical, but you can't just look at corruption alone. It has to be embedded in civil society changes. It has to be embedded in political institutional changes. And those things didn't happen. And so some of those things happened and some of them unsurprisingly reverted back to the kind of institutional scenario pre-Lava Jato. And so the second phase is really one in which there was intense pushback by the judiciary, pushback by the executive, and pushback by the legislature. And we can go through perhaps later what some of those specific efforts were. But then somewhat unfortunately, I would talk about a third phase, which is the current phase. And the pandemic really changed things up because 
I mean, if we think about this is frauding strategy, so let's talk about the fraud triangle or the opportunity component of corruption. Pandemic has done, you know, basically you've had a lot of, you know, initiatives for increased public spending, PPE, you know, purchases, and at the same time, a flexibilization or relaxing of typical public bidding and benefits that La Vajato brought, whether it was in Brazil or in Peru or in Colombia, you know, there's been a relaxation of those things. And lo and behold, we just have to look at Bolivia and, you know, ministers running around with cash in their backpacks and, and the like to see that politicians reverted back to engaging in some of their traditional patterns. And so I'm with you, John. I don't really know where things go from here. I do believe that the political and civil society component will be very, very critical to this because the will is there from a I think a prosecutorial standpoint, the will is there even from a judicial standpoint in certain countries, but the political context makes it very difficult. One last thing, and maybe just a, an area that I think you know, we can be somewhat optimistic about is there has been a deep, deep change in the business environment. So the private sector, while we've seen this pushback, and this is really throughout all the phases, while there's been a pushback from a political class, the private sector has, if anything, gone even further. And so our clients, what we see as a practical matter is, you know, there's a deep and abiding commitment to doing the right thing from a compliance standpoint, having robust programs. Investors, if anything, we found that, you know, investors are particularly focused on not just, you know, having the kind of basic programs in place, but also going way beyond that. And so if there's kind of room for optimism, it's while well, this stuff is happening at the political level, I do think there's been meaningful and lasting change within the private sector. I think that's a really good and important point you just made that even though things are reverting back to maybe past practices from a government perspective, the anti-corruption as baseline expectation for commercial enterprises in Brazil remain committed to ethical business practices, which, you know, could end up being the wild card here. But uh, I think as we sit here today, nobody knows how things are going to play out. The other thing I appreciate very much is it has taken 35 episodes for someone to first invoke Star Wars analogies. So thank you for that. So Petrobras, it exposed vendor overpayment schemes, you know, that were used to fill slush funds for the payment of bribes. It also brought construction giant Odebrecht under the glare of scrutiny and the multifaceted ways that government officials across multiple countries are bribed in exchange for the award of construction contracts to receive permits and licenses, receive tax incentives and favorable environmental income tax, labor and workplace safety inspections, among others, within the authority of these government officials. So which industries in Brazil and the surrounding countries have really embraced corruption reform and which remain particularly susceptible? It's an irony that the industries that I think are actually doing the most are the ones that were most embedded in the, the corruption scandals. And so if you look at to try to recuperate, right, it's natural that taking Brazil as the paradigmatic kind of case if you look at the industries that are doing the most, it's clearly extractives, oil and gas, mining, and infrastructure, right? They're the ones who were, frankly, decimated by the prosecutions and the challenges of Lava Jato. 
the most. They're the ones who have the greatest budgets from a compliance standpoint. I find that they're the most sophisticated. I mean, a lot of these companies have been say in the infrastructure sector there because of restructuring and what they've gone through, they're totally revamped. And I'd be interested to hear you know, John's experience, but I find that the sophistication of companies operating in, in those segments, some of our some of them are our clients, is really, really, really impressive. So the flip side of that is who's most vulnerable. I still find that again, ironically, companies that you don't usually have a ton of touch points with the government, but they have periodic touch points with the government. So technology companies, for example, right? Like sometimes they'll be, you know, practically speaking, they may be a service provider here and there to a local government agency. And they're not always entering into public bidding processes or you know, interacting with government officials. And they get themselves caught up in kind of petty, in some sense, compared to the billions in Lava Jato, petty bribery and kickback schemes. And um, Scott, you went through that laundry list of licensing stuff, environmental permits and customs and logistics. So it's shockingly enough, I finished an investigation maybe three months ago, and I would have thought no company operating in Brazil would ever not have a compliance program. It just seems like you got to be kidding me in this environment. But we had a client and it's like, due diligence, what's that? And you think, how is that possible? But they were not in, you know, the industry were typically impacted. And so I actually think they're the most vulnerable to, you know, potential bribery and corruption is more at the petty level, more at the day-to-day level, but that's been my experience. I agree with that, Chris. It is interesting. I mean, I think some of the extractive industries and construction infrastructure industries have put a tremendous amount of resources into their compliance programs and have really made great strides. I mean, part of it is they have to do it maybe, particularly if they've been subject to uh, investigation and they have undertakings, but it, it does reflect, I think, a lot of work and effort and commitment. And, you know, I think more generally, just kind of taking a step back, multinationals, issuers who are subject to the FCPA, I mean, those companies all have significant incentives to put in place, you know, highly sophisticated compliance programs because of the risk that they face. You know, Chris, you said something earlier that really resonated with me, which is the fact that there is so much money now flowing in the, you know, all these countries on the healthcare side. And, you know, to me, that that struck me as an area of really significant risk and probably the companies, particularly less sophisticated ones that may not have significant compliance programs in place with the pandemic. I certainly think that all that money flowing to various companies there's a lot of risk there for potential corruption and, you know, engaging in wrongdoing around, you know, those government funds. There was always talk about Lava Jato kind of turning to the healthcare and there was some of that and also financial institutions. But, you know, I don't know how far that the Brazilian authorities really got heading down that path. But, you know, I guess we'll see. And then we're starting to, I agree with that. We're starting to see it's almost from a demand, you know, if you think about supply and demand of corruption. I think you're right. Healthcare is certainly always a year or two after, right? But all of the stuff starts coming out. So I, I agree with that. That's one thing we always tell our clients. We do presentations on government priorities is you should be thinking about who's going to be in power in a couple of years, because they're the ones who are actually going to be setting the priorities when whatever misconduct that happened a few years ago is going to be investigated. So just because there are you know lax enforcement right now doesn't mean in two or three years when misconduct is identified that there'll be the same lax enforcement and things can change on a dime. Excellent points, you guys. So 
the thousands of bribe payments in Lava Jato were really deliberately complex and with the intent of concealing the origins of the money. And some were low tech and involved elderly people acting as money mules flying from city to city with bricks of cash strapped to their bodies. And there's a lot of movement of money. Given the complexity of the bribe payments and the need for things like bulk movement of cash, what can companies that have similar concerns do to deter and detect unusually complex payments and off the books cash and cash smuggling? You know, this gets back to at the end of the day, what John said in terms of get back to what I think is the basic, maybe I'll call it mom and, and apple pie compliance program and internal controls environment from an accounting standpoint that I don't know that Brazil is particularly any different than any complex emerging market necessarily. I do think some of the controls that one would put in place from a, and this gets very granular about you know cash disbursements and what you would be doing specifically in Brazil. There is a tropical flavor to that for sure. But I'd be very interested to hear what John thinks about this because one of the big lessons for me in Lava Jato, and it sounds a little bit counterintuitive, which is that management matters incredibly and leadership within financial and accounting positions matters incredibly. In addition to the assuming basic controls, assuming you know robust compliance program, because in all of these cases, there was either collusion or management override of controls. And so if at the highest levels in these institutions, if you don't have individuals who are, frankly, you know, have the kind of character and background and reputation that are going to abide by the control. It's almost it's uncouth to say, right? but it's almost irrelevant what your internal controls environment, if you don't pay very, very close attention to leadership and, and management and not just tone at the top. I mean, tone at the top is be part of it. So I say that maybe this is a shameless plug because in the current environment, what should companies be doing? Well, first thing is there's so much data out there on bad actors that it's almost overwhelming, right? You, you know, the TCU has sanctioned people, the CGU sanctioned, the Minnesota Republic. So at a basic bare minimum, you need to hire the right people, right? And so maybe that's the first thing. And I think, again, when you're talking about macro level corruption, we're talking about collusive behavior with very strategic structures that can override controls and get past all the mom and apple pie type stuff. And what are the other things that I think are pretty important. And that is making sure that you have a very robust internal control environment and guidance and written policies around, frankly, maybe get rid of petty cash accounts entirely or have extreme limited access to it and approvals and, and all that kind of stuff. But then when we talk about accounts payable and high risk expense accounts, right, there are things that companies ought to be doing both from an onboarding standpoint right, that I think could have avoided some of the basic problems. So things like, you know, are you checking whether you're in the due diligence processes? And this is where it's propagalized a little bit. Are you checking that the registered corporate purpose of the entity that you're paying is the same or related to the service that you're hiring them for, right? That's a basic thing that you can do. It literally takes 10 minutes in Brazil to look at the tax registry and other things like that. When you're onboarding, to just make sure A, you do that, B, you have a file, a voucher package that contains that. And then that leads me to the kind of final thing. And again, this is a shameless plug, but companies need to do periodic transaction testing. Where I think maybe companies can really improve that transaction testing is 
not only selecting the obvious high risk accounts and then looking, you're both testing for the internal control compliance and substantive economic justification for the transaction. So you're testing both of those things, but you're also, you know, looking very, very closely at uh, we're onboarding policies followed and procedures followed. And the last thing, and I'll be interested to hear what John thinks about this, but I think um, randomized testing, which frankly, I don't see companies do a ton of that work. They often focus on the judgmentally selected high-risk accounts, but smart fraudsters don't pick high-risk accounts off the they're smart. They're going to move things to different modus operandi. They're going to come up with unique ways of doing it. And so I think some, some degree of randomized selection of accounts for testing is a way that companies can detect whether their policy procedures are being followed, but then even detect instances where they may have a corruption or bribery problem. Chris, I agree with all that. I was wondering when you were going to get to transaction testing. But yeah, transaction testing, test, 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 definitely is such a critical component of it. And I guess two small points to add to this. I mean, I I tend to look at this often from the perspective of coming in to do an investigation and trying to figure out the company's compliance program was like and what remediation needs to be done, focused in part on how the Department of Justice will look at this and their compliance program guidance. And you mentioned tone at the top, and you also refer generally to kind of how executives and officers act and I think conduct at the top is something that the Department of Justice has referred to, and it's just such a critical component of compliance programs. It's not just what you say, but it's what you do. And then another aspect of compliance programs, which I think is really critical, is making sure there's a constant cycle of learning that goes into it, taking the information that you learn, looking for gaps and fixing them, and adjusting your program over time to look into address new risks that are constantly going to be coming up over time and making sure you're doing risk assessments to understand what the risks are, looking for gaps in the program and then fixing it. And I think that's also a really important part of having a compliance program that can address these concerns on payments and increasing complexity of payments and the transactions that could lead to and be used to mask corruption. Well, thanks, John. So, you know, Petrobras it's the largest, most valuable company in Latin America, and it's also state-owned. So as a result, in many ways, it's indistinguishable from the Brazilian state, with numerous executives having been appointed to their positions by the Brazilian president. In fact, in 2013, following nationwide anti-corruption demonstrations and civic unrest, then-President Dilma Rousseff ushered through several anti-corruption laws, which were intended to pacify what was a very angry public. And these new measures included things like plea bargaining and the ability to receive reduced sentences in exchange for cooperation. So how much of a factor were these new changes in Brazilian law in Lava Jato's unprecedented success following decades of corruption investigations that really never went anywhere? I think that's a great question. I think those changes were a huge reason for the success of Lava Jato. Obviously, the prosecutors were the ones who, who drove it, but the legislation, I think, gave them the tools to really push the investigations forward. And, you know, I think it's worth kind of looking at this from the perspective of individual leniency agreements, which were, I think, a really significant development, and then changes in corporate leniency agreements and prosecutions through the Clean Companies Act. You know, with the ability to enter into leniency agreements with individuals, as a former prosecutor, one of the things that we would always look for when doing an investigation was you look for an individual who could cooperate against the other members of a conspiracy 
bureaucracy to kind of give you the insider's view as to what's going on. You know, so often, you know, even in corporate investigations, there's a lot that's not written down and you really need somebody to kind of give you that insider view and the ability to arrest somebody, get them to cooperate and exchange for reduction in a sentence is really a critical tool for prosecutors. And in these cases, given their complexity, I think it's even more important. And really the MPF and the other agencies in Brazil were able to really take advantage of this. They, you know, defendants were arrested, targets were arrested. In many instances, they were subject to preventive detention. So they were detained and they were just reading some of the stories about it, not always in the best of conditions. And they have every incentive then to flip on their co-conspirators in order to to get leniency and to, to get out of, potentially get out of prison. You know, the prosecutors, I think, to their credit, really were able to utilize those individual leniency applicants to, you know, unmask what was really a complicated web of shell companies and financial transactions that supported the bribery schemes here. And they were able to do this, I think, far faster than they would have been able to do it had they only been able to look at the cold records of, you know, the bank records or emails or the like. And then I think the Clean Companies Act was another significant change because it really incentivized companies to do the same thing, to conduct investigations, to report what they found to the authorities by providing strict liability for companies and significant fines. Companies had every incentive, much like in the United States, to undertake uh, internal investigations, report to the authorities what they found, and to try to reduce the penalties that they faced as a result of misconduct by their employees. And all of those things really contributed to the growth of Lava Jato and really allowed it to explode, really, for lack of a better way of describing it, into this huge investigation with so many different tentacles. I 100% agree with that. The two things I might add is... Um, I think that there was, and, and some of this is just anecdotal based on the, the individuals who were involved in the, you know, there's an interesting question, why did Lava Jato happen? And I do think that sometimes actors matter and agents matter, and, and sometimes it's, you know, structural forces and that kind of thing. So I, I definitely think the legal changes, things like having a more robust preventive detention scenario, wiretapping and breaking sigilo, having more access to financial banking information. All that helped. But two other things, there was a deep learning by doing within the public prosecutor's office and both from the individuals involved, people like Delton Dallagnol and the whole cast of characters within federal public prosecutor's office, you know, who was frankly spending a lot of time, you know, a lot of them were learning from U.S. authorities. I don't think it's a coincidence that Dallagnol did his LLM at Harvard and was trained in a lot of techniques that U.S. prosecutors and tools that U.S. prosecutors had adopted over the years and then went back and kind of found a way to implement that. And the learning by doing occurred with two prior cases. And you don't hear a lot about this, but there was Mensalão, which was a huge corrupt crisis involving Lula and campaign finance. And there was Operation Castello Girea, which is Sandcastle. Both of those cases, I think if you were to talk to prosecutors and some of the judicial authorities involved, thought they went poorly. And so they learned a lot of lessons about how to go about structuring the task force, how to go about developing these cases, you know, in a patient kind of collected manner, together with the tools that came out of these legislative changes. And then the last thing I'll mention, and I'm increasingly convinced that the changes in civil society that were happening right in 2013, and by that I mean the public's deep clamoring for something to be done around corruption issues, you know, that was the kind of, you know, immediate cause of the legislation. 
but it also had ripple effects. It kind of gets back to what I was saying about the public sector. I mean, had massive ripple effects in society. And frankly, that's the thing I'm most concerned about in some ways now. I mean, I think the private sector has really you know, robustly adopted anti-corruption measures. Civil society, because of the economic downturn and some of the other challenges that are becoming more salient, it's easy for people to say, hey, look, we'll deal with corruption when we're in, we're in boom times. And right now we just want bread on the table and, and education and these basic public goods. And so um, I do think the civil society component, if we think about the causal, you know, reason why Lagarde was so successful, I think the civil society scenario at the time played a pretty meaningful role. So Judge Sergio Moro led the Lava Jato investigation for several years. He reportedly made liberal use of something that John mentioned earlier, preventive detentions, which were used to deny bail to wealthy and powerful defendants and limit their ability to use their influence to undermine the investigations. So the use of preventive detention seemed to have resulted in a spike in plea bargains that helped drive the Lava Jato investigation forward. With Judge Morrow no longer leading things, have preventive detentions continued under the investigation's new leadership or just under the investigative, you know, sort of mantle in general? And what does that mean for continued enforcement? Scott, the impact of preventive detentions was, I mean, we talked about this a, a little while ago, but it was very significant in furthering the Lava Jato investigation and the MPF in particular and utilize them. There were some famous stories, uh, you know, you mentioned that wealthy individuals were often detained and probably maybe the, the best known example of that is Marcelo Odebrecht himself was detained for more than a year in preventive detention. And even Michelle Temer was in 2019 was detained on a preventive detention basis. And you know, Moro was well known for granting these requests and certainly a defendant target of an investigation who's incarcerated. If anything, it steps up the incentive for that person to cooperate so they can get out of jail, be released, hopefully, or at least reduce their sentence in the long run. Going to your question and, and whether these are going to be used as much going forward, I think that they continue to be a tool of prosecutors. It's a little bit hard to tell the numbers. I think there have been just, I think, as the Lava Jato has been winding down, there have been more, of course, left to become the Minister of Justice and in the Bolsonaro administration. There have been a decrease in the sort of reduction in Lava Jato activities generally. And then now, of course, the task force itself has been dissolved. And you know, preventive detentions have become this hot button issue in Brazil. They were certainly criticized significantly during the peak of the Lava Jato investigation. And then again, and I think we'll probably talk about this later more, but when Judge Moro's impartiality was called into question when The Intercept published recordings, hacked messages anyway, of his communications with one of the prosecutors um, on the task force. When Moro was, um, when he was the Minister of Justice and he was pushing for changes through this anti-crime package, you know, the Bolsonaro administration didn't throw their weight behind it. And then, at least as I understand it, when Moro was somewhat discredited, Congress kind of took advantage of the situation to try to amend Brazilian law and kind of change a little bit the way that these preventive detentions could work, which could undermine their effectiveness. And the anti-crime package that Congress passed, as opposed to what Moro really wanted, would require judges to revisit preventive detentions every 90 days, which is obviously a big change compared to this sort of indefinite preventive detention that was uh, something that the Lava Jato task force was able to utilize to such great effect, I think, and impact. And then after that 90 days, the detention could be considered illegal. And there's been some, I think, debate 
in Brazil, as I understand it about this, there was an instance in October of 2020, a Supreme Court justice actually revoked the preventive detention of a high-profile drug dealer who then fled because his detention rather hadn't been reviewed at the 90-day period. And then, of course, that led to further debate about the reasonableness of that decision and you know, whether or not the 90-day requirement was kind of a strict rule and whether or not the justice's decision was correct. And I think that lends itself to some uncertainty about the ongoing use of preventive detentions. And I think the bottom line, to make a long story short, is I think they'll continue to be used, but there's some limitations now on them that could limit their effectiveness if after 90 days a target can be released while the lengthy Brazilian criminal process plays itself out. Yeah, I agree with that. Like when, when we talk about anti-lavajato measures, definitely there's been a change, even its perception of the use of preventive detention. And that has come from the executive. It's come from the legislature and the judiciary. But I do think that there's been a chilling effect by all of the recent decisions, whether it's the impartiality, you know, the, the Supreme Court's decision about Moro's impartiality, but also their interpretations about with the quote Lula principle, Principio Lula, which is if a defendant files a habeas corpus claim and that's going separately, that also makes it difficult to have a preventive detention. And then there was, you're, you're totally right about the legislative change with the anti-crime package in 2019. You know, it got into the legislature and there was a lot of optimism about it, but they gutted a lot of provisions and they threw in some little tweaks around preventive detention. For example, a judge can't, and it's very directed at Sergio Moro, a judge can't sua sponte issue preventive detention either. It has to go through an additional procedure through the Ministerio Publico. And so there are all these little tweaks and then, you know, just from a media standpoint, Vaza Jato, you know, the leak that John was referencing with The Intercept has changed public perception of prevent. You know, there's, there's a view that there was a lot of potentially problematic, you know, activity between the Minister of Publico and the judges. So all of that is to say, if you're a trial court judge in Brazil right now, right, and all this stuff is coming down the pipeline, I think it's going to have a chilling effect on the use of preventive detention. So I, I agree with you, John. So often is the case when we have a fertile topic, particularly on a, a major case like Lava Jato, we have more content than could possibly fit neatly into a single episode. And this is one of those instances. So please stay tuned for the continuation of a very interesting conversation with Chris DeSaw and John Kalotner while we close out the discussion on Lava Jato, its implications on Brazil, and the broader Latin American business and regulatory community. Thank you for joining us, and stay tuned for the next episode. Thank you. Thank you.